Welcome to the final instalment of our four-month series on the final uh, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you're just joining us today for the first time, I apologize for assuming an awful lot in this, uh, in this home straight together. Right at the beginning of the series, one of the more literary types in our congregation, and we have a few, put me on to what turns out to be one of the world's leading uh, English critics, uh, professor of literature at uh, Cambridge University, and apparently massively influential, and it's taken me uh, all this time to just get my head around his grand literary theory, which he articulated in a book called The Sense of an Ending. His name is Frank Commode, and his argument is basically that Christianity, and in particular the apocalyptic outlook of the book of Revelation, decisively shaped the Western novel, the way people read fiction today. Prior to Christianity, most cultures had a cyclical view of nature and of history. Just as the seasons go round and around, so ancient pagans believed that history and the universe just repeats the same themes in an endless, repetitive cycle. But with the advent of Christianity, Commode argued, people began to see the universe and history not as an endless cycle, but as an unfolding story with an ending that isn't completely known to us, but that can nonetheless be trusted. We have a sense of an ending, and that sense gives meaning to the unpredictable present. Commode argues in profound detail that this apocalyptic outlook that changed the Western world at the theoretical level has actually shaped the Western novel, not only in its uh, medieval religious form, which you'd kind of expect, but also in the modern secular form of the novel. Um, Westerners now read fiction with an assumption that despite the tensions and tragedies of a story, everything will be resolved in the end. We have a sense of an ending that allows us to believe there's a rewarding climax in store for those who patiently entrust themselves to the author's unfolding story. It's an extraordinary analysis. And what Commode argues about Western literature is certainly true of Christian theology. The whole Bible, and especially our book of Revelation, is designed to give us a sense of an ending, one that allows us to trust the author, despite the tragedies and sadness of the world, trust the author that he will make good on his promises, that this sense of an ending gives meaning to the present uncertainties. And trusting ourselves to the one who will unfold his story of grace. That is certainly what Revelation 22 is about, with its symbols 
of a river, a tree, a throne, and so on. So, let's take these in turn. Don't panic that you see a seven-point sermon on the screen. Just entrust yourself to the unfolding story of the preacher this morning. Notice in the opening line of Revelation 22, how I hope you have it open in front of you this morning, notice uh, that this river of life, river of the water of life, flows from a very particular source. Do you see that? It flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. Very particular, God and the Lamb. God as creator, of course, is the source of life, breath, existence itself. Jesus as the Savior, the Lamb sacrificed for our sins, is the source of new life, eternal life. Here then, in this one image of a river flowing from God and the Lamb, is kind of the whole of Christianity, creation and redemption. We all have life from the Creator. If you are breathing this morning, you're already experiencing the gift of life from the Creator. But there is also the true eternal life that comes from the Lamb, from the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Christianity isn't merely about revering a nebulous Creator that is the source of creation, which loads of people can get their heads around. Christianity also includes entrusting yourself to Jesus as the source of eternal life because of His death and resurrection. And with that, we're introduced to the tree, the most famous tree in the Bible, verse uh, 2, second half. On each side of the river stood the tree, the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Of course, this recalls the Garden of Eden, which is why we had the Garden of Eden story just read to us. Remember, at the center of the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And if you remember, I can't expect you to remember, at the beginning of the year, we did a series. It went for 10 weeks on Genesis 1 to 3. I'm getting sun nods. That's good. Thanks, Narelle. Uh, and, and in that series, I explained that in the symbolism of uh, Genesis 1 to 3, the tree of life at the center of the garden was this potent symbol that human beings are not inherently immortal. They must actually eat of the tree of life to be sustained in their uh, ongoing existence. They were allowed to eat from that tree, but remember, there was another tree they weren't allowed to eat from, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that, if you remember the series, doesn't mean merely knowing good and evil, the idea of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the book of Genesis is about choosing good and evil for yourself. Not just knowing right from wrong, but deciding right from wrong. And if you remember the story, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They ate from that tree. In other words, they sort of enacted their own moral paradigm. They chose good from evil. And as a result, a curse fell on them and the creation, and they were banished from the garden, Genesis 3 says, and at the uh, gateway to the garden, do you remember what was placed there? A flaming sword flashing back and forth, guarding the way to the tree of life. So now they're not allowed to eat from the tree of life, 
They are banished. And the question that uh, we're left with at the end of Genesis 3, the question that the rest of the Bible answers is, how do we get back there? How do we get back around the sword to the tree of life? And the answer the Bible gives is, one would bear the sword on our behalf. Jesus would take the penalty, the curse upon himself, through his death on a cross, so that we can access the ongoing life of God. And that's what is here at the center of this vision of God's kingdom, the tree of life, which now we can eat, and now the curse is removed. Verse 3 is quite clear about that. It says, no longer will there be any curse, because we have access to the tree of life. Well, we continue upriver, past the tree, up to the throne. Verse 3, second half. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's the first thing that happens before the throne of God and the Lamb? Worship. It's quite clear. They will serve Him. This word serve, latruo, uh, means worship. Bowing our whole life before God and the Lamb. I love what St. Augustine, way back in the 5th century, said about worship. Very clarifying. Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you, because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Worship isn't enslavement. It's what we're made for. And so there is this beautiful uh, uh, statement in verse 4 that we will see God face to face. This speaks of intimacy with God, not enslavement. Those of you who know your Bibles well know that there are many passages that say, No one can see God and live. And yet here in the climactic chapter of the Bible, it says, we will see God face to face in life for eternity. Worship is what we're made for. But we don't just worship, we rule. Look at the end of verse 5, this little throwaway line, and they will reign forever and ever. We're not just bowing before God all the time. We're reigning. We're sharing in His rule. For those who know their Bibles, this, of course, recalls one of the opening lines of the Bible. The first thing we ever hear about humanity in Genesis 1, verse 26, is this. Let us make mankind in our image, God said, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And so it's not surprising that in the climax of the new creation, we're not just falling down before God all day long. We are, in some mysterious sense, princes and princesses of the King. 
sharing in his reign. Then there's a pause in the vision, and the angel, who's been mediating the whole message of Revelation to the Apostle John, talks directly with John. So look at verse 6, the angel first confirms the trustworthiness of all of this, and then verse 7, he actually quotes Jesus, look, I am coming soon, etc. But the main thing I want you to notice in this section is that strange admission in verses 8 and 9, that John fell down and worshipped the angel. Okay, let's think about this for a second. The Apostle John, who kind of was pretty good at theology, bows down to an angel. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard, when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets, and with all who keep the words of the scroll, worship God. I love that John inserts here in the book of Revelation his big theological oops. And it's a kind of object lesson in one of the central themes of the book of Revelation. Careful who you worship. Remember, I've said repeatedly that the great temptation of the people who first received the book of Revelation in Turkey in the first century, the great temptation was to bow down to the statue of the emperor. On pain of death, there was a giant statue of the emperor in many cities throughout Asia Minor, throughout what we call Turkey. And you had to bow down to it to show you were a a loyal citizen of Rome. So isn't this a lovely reminder? If you can't even bow down before an angel authorized to speak on God's behalf, you sure as anything can't bow down before a pagan emperor. Careful who you worship, including the gods of wealth, status, comfort, family, self. John presumably gets straight back up on his feet, remembering, oh yeah, the the first commandment is I'm not meant to worship anyone but God, straight back up on his feet, and the angel then delivers the message in verses 10 and 11. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. Let the holy person continue to be holy. I admit this sounds very strange at first. Why on earth would the angel say, ah, the wicked should just carry on? As you were, wickeding, right? Tyrants continue. Well, (laughs) what's this about? We'll see in a moment, when we look at verse 17, this can't be a theological lockout, because verse 17 has the most beautiful open invitation to anyone who is thirsty to come and drink the water of life. So, it can't mean that, what must it mean? I think verse 11 has a specific rhetorical purpose, to urge believers to remember, don't fret that you can't change the world as you'd hoped. 
Don't fret that you won't be able to change all tyranny and evil in this world. You just worry about what you're meant to worry about. Doing right. Being holy. In some ways, this is very much like the message of the famous serenity prayer. You know the serenity prayer? It's often uh, used by Alcoholics Anonymous and all all those anonymous groups, Um, but it was originally written by the famous American theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, and only the first stanza is used widely in, um, in sort of care groups, but there is a second stanza. Let me read both. God give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. It's beautiful. That's where most people stop, but it goes on. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. There are some things and people we can't change. Let them be. But for the rest, the beautiful invitation remains open. And I'll ask Andrew to now read from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Continuing from verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderous, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. 
There's so much uh, to take in, in the build-up to the invitation of verse 17. Let me just point out a few things before I zero in on the beautiful invitation. First, we're reminded of Jesus' status as the divine Lord and therefore judge of all the earth. In verse 12 and 13, we have extraordinary statements about Jesus. I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. I'll give to each person what they, according to what they've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These words are the climax of an extraordinary accumulation of titles in the book of Revelation belonging to God the Father and Christ the Son. Here's how it pans out. In chapter 1, verse 8 of Revelation, it's God who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. But then in chapter 1, verse 17, it's Christ who says, I am the first and the last, which sounds similar, but not identical. Then in chapter 21, verse 6, it's God, the Lord God, speaking, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And now in the climactic example in 22:13, it's Jesus himself who says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is a deliberate accumulation of the most extraordinary titles belonging to Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord. We have to confront the fact that Jesus is not just a good teacher. How you could get that from any part of Scripture, I don't know, but here it's impossible. He is the Lord God. And it's as the divine Lord that Jesus comes with His reward, we're told in verse uh, 12, I'm coming with my reward. And then in verses 14 and 15, the reward is explained. There's a positive aspect to the reward and a negative. So positively, verse 14, those who have washed their robes will enjoy the tree of life and the city. Okay? But then negatively, verse 15, those who pursue evil, that is without repentance, remain outside. This repeats what we saw last week. There's no way to interpret the book of Revelation as meaning that everyone will be saved in the end. Some will be lost. Those who reject the good without repentance will get their wish, excluded from the good in God's kingdom. And so we cry, verse 17, come, Jesus, come. It says the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church, say, come. And then it says, let the one who hears all of this, that's the church listening to the book of Revelation, we join in saying, come. What's this about? It's just saying, come with your reward, Lord. Come and overthrow tyranny. Come and bring judgment on the tyrants. Come, make all things new again. Come. And then we hear the invitation. With this profound sense of ending, we read at the very end of verse 17, let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift 
of the water of life. Soak that up. The free gift of the water of life. If you were here last week, you'll go, that sounds like something I heard last week. Yes. 21.6. Chapter 21, verse 6. Look at this lovely statement. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And do you remember we did a bit of nerdy Greekness last week? I said this is the adverb Dorian, and in Greek syntax, to emphasize something, you place a key word at the very end of the sentence. It's like a, a, it's like a pause and a climax, right? And th- this says this Dorian at the end, freely at the end. Come drink the water of life freely. And that's exactly the same idea here in uh, 2217. And it's exactly the same word, and it's at the end of the sentence. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the gift of the water of life altogether now, freely. Did I hear some nerd say Dorian just then? (laughs) For the arrogant and unrepentant, there is judgment and exclusion. For the thirsty, the willing, there is life freely. Don't you want me to end the sermon there? Wouldn't that be awesome? After such a comforting reminder of the free gift of salvation, the last thing we want is another warning. And that's exactly what we get in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Why after such a beautiful invitation to salvation would there be such a depressing warning against meddling with this book? I must admit, you know, it's one of those times where, as a preacher, I felt like doing some meddling. At least skipping over it, right? And hoping you wouldn't notice. The more I thought about it, the more convinced I am we should be profoundly thankful for this warning. Because here's the thing. Adding to or subtracting from this final book of the Bible would imperil someone's salvation. And let's be clear, this warning isn't directed at you as a congregation. It's directed at me as leader. Tom, Stu, Ness, Santino. Because only the elders have the opportunity and the power to adjust what you hear. Yeah? 
And in its ancient context, of course, you've got to imagine this scroll coming from John, locked up on Patmos. It comes first to Ephesus, where it is then copied. Literally, the scroll is copied out for the seven churches of Asia. Yeah? And at that point, or at any point, it's received by the church of Laodicea or Sardis or whatever, when the elder receives it and thinks about reading it out to the congregation, at any of those points, any elder could scratch out a line, add a line, and you wouldn't know. And modern leaders can do the same thing, just by choosing what we will and won't preach on. We can leave some of God's words, some of the difficult bits out, and you'd be none the wiser. This warning is a safeguard against theological innovation and hobby horses. Imagine some moralizing elder in, say, Sardis, not liking the word freely repeated twice in the end, because they want to emphasize the strict moral demands of the gospel, none of this grace business, and all they have to do is go, oh, Dorian, no, scratch out. And leave Christians with a really sort of oppressive sense that you've got to earn the water of life. It would be simple. Imagine some elitist in Laodicea who didn't like the critique of wealth back in chapter 3 of Revelation and just by the addition of a few words hinted that actually to be wealthy is to be blessed by God. Or imagine some other elder who didn't like the martyrdom theme at the heart of the book of Revelation. And just with a few additions and subtractions, hints that under certain circumstances, it's okay to take revenge against Rome. The examples are endless, the danger is clear, with a bit of adding and subtracting, you can ruin the gospel of grace and its ethical implications. Praise God, this warning is here. It'd be just like some treacherous NASA engineer who changes the parameters of a rocket launch, right? Just a few numbers, numbers, just three instead of four. explosion. Imagine some doctor or nurse who just slightly adjusts a patient's charts, just slightly adjusting the dosage, slightly delaying a procedure, death would be the result. Surely the stakes are infinitely higher for the final book of God's Word to us, a book designed to give us our sense of ending, that allows us to walk through the tyrannies of the world trusting in God. This book tells us about the unfolding story of God's grace, about Christ's sacrifice, so we could be forgiven. So we could know how to love a fallen world. About Christ's resurrection, the proof and pledge that God intends to make all things new. 
Such a book must never be changed. And with all that in mind, I reckon the Apostle John thought long and hard about what he'd write in the final line. What would end up being the final line of the whole Bible. You think of John on Patmos. He's delivered this awesome vision. Ended it with a warning that this should never be changed. And then he thinks, okay, what do I say in the end? Of all the things he could have said. He could have said, hang in there. Stay true. But look what he does. He chooses a word that takes all the emphasis off us and our performance and places it on God and what He has done for us. You see the word? Grace. I know the book of Revelation is obscure at a literary point of view, but its message is straight down the line. Its message is the central message of the whole Bible. Grace. The free gift of life and mercy in Jesus Christ. In the end, the thing that will secure you in God's unfolding story is not your subjective sense of an ending, as important as that is. No, the thing that will secure you in God's unfolding story is His objective grace. What He has done for you. And so, I end this series the way John intended it to end. With the final word of the Word of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.